Boy, if, if I'd known then what I know now, there would have been room in my inn. I would have given him my own bed. But how could I know? Bethlehem was packed. I'd never seen that many people. The government was requiring everyone to come to their hometown and register. Government's got to have their money, right? Since no one wants to stay with their in-laws, I was packed solid. <laughs> I remember that day well. <clears throat> it was probably uh, right before dinner. Every room we had was booked up. And it was well after two hours after dinner that they showed up. I remember uh, watching them as they approached. He looked scared and exhausted, and she was about to burst. And I was thinking, what am I going to tell them? Uh, sorry, folks, we're, we're all full tonight. And uh, as they approached, they just kind of sat there in silence, collecting their thoughts, their heads down. She winced in pain, and he just looked up at me and he said, please. That's all he said was just, please. Let me tell you guys a story. When I was five, I was helping my mom set the table, and I noticed that she had too many plates out. And I said, Mom, you got too many plates out over here. And she said, you never know who's going to show up. You always make room. I just kind of looked at her like, what? And she said again, you never know who's going to show up. You never know who God's going to bring your way. You always make room. Long story short is we made room. It wasn't our best room, but it was all that we had. My mom was right. You always make room, especially when it comes to God. Lit uh, the candle of preparation. It's also known as the Bethlehem candle and it is a purple candle which means it's also a time this week to prepare our hearts for Christ and so it's a um, I think that you heard the theme always make room for God and uh, in our life it's easy to have everything crowd out right so it's important to have these times these weeks where we evaluate our life and we make room for God and that is really what this week is about as we prepare to celebrate the advent is uh, if Christ came but here's no room in your life he does no good for you right we want to welcome him. And so this week, it's a time of introspection, a time of preparation of our hearts. Now, we do have uh, um, a memory verse that we've been working on all this season so far, and it is Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of peace. All right, so let's talk about the innkeeper, innkeeper story. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Luke chapter 2. If uh, you have one of our Bibles, it's going to be on page 715. If uh, you forgot your Bible or you need one, they've got plenty in the back, so you want to grab one of those. And if you just need a new Bible, keep it, our gift to you, which is some good stuff. Now, as you turn there, we're going to read a story that's kind of one of, it's a, the, actually most of these stories in scripture, that you know, they're kind of bizarre, uh, the, the, how Christ was born. It wasn't a normal typical occasion, and it's not exactly what we thought of when God would come. Uh, didn't, he didn't arrive in the way that we anticipated, though in Scripture he fulfilled all the prophecies in doing so. Um, and uh, here we have this story, which obviously uh, most manger scenes have a 
manger, right? There's a, there's a, a stable where Christ is born in. There's that part. And so we talk about the innkeeper. And I think he gets a, a bad rap, kind of unfortunately. He gets a bad rap. He's really maligned, but I don't, uh, I think it's probably un- unjustifiably so. Uh, you know, and, and really the innkeeper is not even mentioned directly. If you read this, you never read in there, the innkeeper said. You just don't have that. Um, and so we only know about him because um, inns where Jesus and Mary stay, or Joseph and Mary stay, and Jesus was born. The inns typically have keepers, right? <laughs> That's how we know that he is there. So hopefully all that gave you time to, to turn in your Bible, and we'll read the first seven verses. And uh, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Or Quirinius. I'm sorry, I'm on um, cold medicine. My mouth is not working. Why, Q man uh, (laughs) was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and were expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, a beautiful story of how Christ came in. Now, some things that are important that we, we get from this passage. It, uh, for starters, this is the Gospel of Luke. This is the Gospel that was written by the only Gentile that writes anything in the New Testament, right? And he writes it to basically other Gentiles show us how God really came, right? Try to explain this. He goes and he investigates and he does all these things so that we would know that God showed up. And he writes from this perspective. I mean, he grew up Roman, and not just like underclass Roman, but, you know, he's a doctor. He's, he's fairly well educated. He's fairly well respected. The, the system worked well for him. And he goes and he writes about something. And, and I think there are some things that typically we read and we, because we've heard the story so many times, we gloss over. But he's saying a whole lot in that very first verse. The first thing he talks about, he says, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Why did he bring up Caesar? Well, for starters, you always, it's a time stamp, right? I love the fact that our gospel actually took place in real time, real place, real history. And so oftentimes, the ancient historians, they didn't have dates to tie things to because Jesus hadn't been born yet, so they didn't have the, the Gregorian calendar like we have. So typically, they tied their dates to whoever was in charge and, and, and based upon the current system that was there. And Caesar Augustus had made Roman Empire, so that was kind of the first of age, right? So in those days, it's one of the reasons why he, he brings it up. But then he explains some things that Jesus is later on, in fact, in the entire rest of the book, that really show how Jesus is the real deal and how Caesar was basically an, uh, a, a cheap knockoff. I love that. And we'll talk about it. So, so let's talk about this Caesar Augustus. Caesar was, um, he was adopted by Julius Caesar. Right? In fact, uh, Caesar Augustus, he, he was uh, he, basically he was this guy named Octavian. Uh, he was, uh, uh, he was a, a up-and-coming kind of guy. Julius Caesar, who really founded this republic of Rome, right? really made it, sorry to be very, very powerful. Uh, there was an attempt, and actually he was executed after um, uh, was a coup by the Senate. They didn't like what you... What, uh, what Julius Caesar was doing, right? And so uh, there was Brutus and, and all these uh, guys that you might remember, um, 
Cassius, they have this rebellion and they stab uh, Julius to death on the, on the steps of the Senate, on the Ides of March, right? Every, this, this historical story. Well, he had an adopted son who was an adult when he adopted him, by the way. He basically picked the next guy who was going to be on the throne, and that was Augustus. And so uh, July comes before August. I think that's cool. So you, you have Augustus. And Augustus is not real happy with the fact that these guys murdered his, his adopted father on the Senate steps, right? He saw that the Republic wasn't all that awesome. And so what does he do? Well, he goes and he fights against these guys and basically puts down the rebellion and subdues the Republic under the rule of the Roman now emperor. And, and he is now the emperor and he has all kinds of power. Right? It wasn't just the Republic anymore. The emperor now had basically sovereignty. Now, what happened was is after um, Julius was, was executed, the Romans, uh, they deified their, their emperors. And so you have Julius Caesar is a god. And on one of the, some of the coins to, to show his legitimacy to that place, there's coins that we have of, from the ancient world that have Caesar Augustus on there, and it says, uh, Caesar Augustus, son of a god. All right, so he of Julius, son of God. And, and the fact that he, he, uh, uh, he avenged the, uh, and put down the rebellion, Caesar Augustus was oftentimes called the savior of Rome. In fact, there's a couple of statues in Rome where they would worship uh, Caesar Augustus even while he was alive. And some of the titles that they put under those things were that he was a son of God, savior of Rome. And in fact, some of them even put savior of the world because the Romans thought if, if it wasn't Rome, it wasn't really valid. And not only that, you have a son of God, savior of the world, see, uh, um, <laughs> Caesar Augustus, he was, uh, he fought against, in order to put down the Senate, he, he teamed up with this guy named Mark Antony, and, and, Anthony. and so Mark Antony and him, they, uh, they end up putting down the rebellion, but then Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus couldn't share power, and so now there's a civil war that begins, and Mark Antony tries to go and get some, uh, some allies to help him fight, so he goes down to Egypt, because Egypt has always been a big player, and they had the things, and there was this gal there, she was one of the Cleopatras, right? And they become good buddies, and they try to take on Rome. And so basically the, uh, the Republic of Rome, now the new uh, Empire Rome, was, was basically at risk of being destroyed. And Caesar Augustus beats Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and keeps and saves and puts together the Roman Empire and restores peace. And because of that, and all the statues and the writings and things like this, a lot of things, that, in fact, even in the Praetorium and in the... Um, and in the, uh, at the central element of the government of Rome, there is a, a big building there that is an altar to the peace of Augustus. I think that's amazing. It's a building there. It's the peace of Augustus. He was a prince of peace. He was the one that, that brought peace to the empire and by doing so, peace to the world. And then, uh, not only that, but because he was emperor... He also got the title of Pontifus Maximus in Rome, which means he's the chief priest. Another way of saying he's a wonderful counselor. You have a man on the throne in the time that Jesus was born, right? That, that's just all of the things that we would expect from a Messiah. A wonderful counselor, a mighty God. Oh, and I didn't get this part. Everlasting Father. 
Do you know that throughout Rome, they put statues and all these, and these uh, the places to worship Rome and also Caesar Augustus, even while he was alive. And they would have Rome, the, 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 a statue that would represent the, the spirit of liberty, the spirit of Rome, would be there, and it was always a woman. And then you would have Caesar Augustus would also be there as the father of the republic, right? As the father of liberty, everlasting father, and a prince of peace. It was not missed on the people that lived in the time of Christ, although most of the Jews, when they looked at this, you know, they saw that there was already this, this thing. And there were some, not the majority, and by fact, um, historical or the archaeological evidence, there's just a very few that were uh, people that were kind of outcasts. They were Jews that kind of um, made their own little colonies and all that to try to stay pure and all this. But there's some writings that are in there that debate whether or not Isaiah 9-6, they had misread it all those years. And then it, they missed it, and it wasn't supposed to be a prophecy for the Messiah. It was actually a prophecy for, a, a, uh, uh, for Caesar Augustus, for somebody that was going to, to work against them. I think that was interesting. Now, granted, the majority of the Jews didn't see that or, or recognize it. But here is a time in which you have a man that, that is living up to, seemingly, all of those things, but not bringing a kind of peace or a joy that, that the world really... That it was kind of more confining, wasn't it? <laughs> And so you have this, uh, this time in the days of Caesar Augustus. That's the time when Christ was born. Now, this, this governor says that in verse 1 that he had a census, right, for the entire Roman world, right? Some of the ancient Greek actually says the entire world, but this was written to Romans who thought the entire world was Rome, uh, which was there. And there wasn't one census that was put out there that like everybody all at once in the entire world had to go to their own hometown. Because think about it, it wouldn't work, right? Because say there's a shopkeeper that lives in this town and they've got to go across the way. And so they did it regionally. The idea was that actually we know that Caesar Augustus had a, a thing where he had a, um, he, he had a census to find a tax assessment for the entire Roman Empire. He wanted to know who were his subjects, and where, what uh, nationality with ethnicity they were, what tribe, right? Because we know even still that tribal politics plays a role in the Middle East, right? I mean, it matters. And, and the Roman Empire, which was once a republic, is now an empire, is expanding. They want to know who is in part of the empire, how can we tax them, and what factions are they, and where do they live? And so it was difficult, and you have everybody by region, eventually having to go back to their, their thing. So, um, so it's a tax assessment. God can even work through taxes, right? Quirinius, the Syrian, uh, has a Syrian census. This is a part in Scripture that a lot of uh, critics of the gospel point to this and say, well, this proves that none of it can be true, and, and it just shows that they are wanting to dismiss the, the validity of Scripture without actually ever reading it. Um, it says this took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Well, Quirinius was the governor of Syria at, at 86, right? So when he did this, in fact, in Acts, it talks about he did this, uh, um, this census, and there was a big revolt, and it was put down. Well, 86, is, that's a little bit too late because Jesus was born in probably 4 B.C., so there's a 10-year gap. So critics would say, well, this couldn't happen. Though there's some words in there that I think that are interesting, they're important. It says this was the first census that took place. There was another one, and the second one was the one that everybody thought 6 AD one. And so we find, and I love how history, like throughout you know, the 1800s or whatever, we have people criticizing scripture. And even if you go to Wikipedia, they'll say, there's never been a credible explanation for this. Well, they should actually 
read what's happening in the world. There's archaeology, which is really cool, which found out that uh, here in this last uh, five years ago that, um, that uh, in between 5 and the year 3 B.C., uh, Quirinus was the litigate or the governor, basically just the leader, of uh, Sicilia, as it, which was an area that was annexed to, see, uh, to, uh, to uh, Syria. Right, so that was an area where he was governor in Syria. Why would why would Luke then reference him? Well, because he was the one that also took the second great uh, uh, um, census later on that they had the big rebellion. So he was tying it to say this guy did one before, and this is the guy that did it. So we would know, right? So he was appointed in six A.D. as as the uh, litigate of Syria, and that's when we have Caesar Augustus appointing another census of the area which is around Jerusalem and Syria, right? Why would Caesar Augustus appoint uh, this guy, oh, um, Quirinius, Quirinius, why would he appoint him to do this, the big census in Jerusalem? Because he already had done another census up in Syria. He was the right man for the job. And then, of course, there was a big um, rebellion at that time. So it didn't go well from the second time, but the first time apparently it did. People are moving in. You have... Uh, uh, going around the empire. Why? Um, we, we know that there was an overlap between King Herod, Herod the Great, and Quirinius uh, between 4 and 5 BC, that both of the men were alive and in power. And that's why we know that's when Jesus was born. So there you go. History, isn't it great? Okay. <clears throat> so everyone, it says in verse 3, went to their own town. And actually, right here, everybody went to their own town. And you say, why would you have to do that? Well, uh, it's important for the king to know exactly who was part of what tribe and all this kind of stuff for the governorship. We know from, um, you have these uh, um, pottery uh, archaeological digs I found in it that, that show that there was a mass migration around the time of Christ's birth, just a little bit before, from the area of Galilee all the way to Nazareth. Like there was a good group of people that moved from, uh, from Bethlehem, sorry, from Bethlehem to Nazareth. They moved to that direction which is an interesting thing, which means Joseph, he might not have been gone from Bethlehem that many years, right? They had family ties there. He had to go back. But also, it says in Scripture, because he was in the, pre, the kingly line of David. And it wasn't just like David had a son, and then like his third son, you know, is where, where, where Joseph and Mary, where their lineage came from. It was through the lineage of all of the kings. It's pretty cool. Um, in fact, in my office, I've got a, a cool uh, little thing that shows you the, the, the genealogy of Jesus and how he came right from the lineage of kings. And so where was King David born? Bethlehem. That's why he had to go back there. Okay, so Joseph and Mary, they're sent to the king. They have to travel back to Bethlehem. Now, that's not an easy travel. And so they said they went up. You have to go up quite a bit. I, um, we're hopefully going to be going to Israel like, pretty soon. And as we do, <laughs> there's a teaser for you. Um, as we go up to Nazareth, you'll see that you go up, and they had to go there. So anyway, it was not an easy path. It was about 80 miles to travel while one of your party is pregnant, which is not fun, and not only that, but that's 80 miles if you go through Samaria, which they might not have done. They might have, um, and that's the most direct path. That's a long way to go. Okay, so they get there, and it says Mary travel. Why was Mary there? Right? You would think, well, you just have to register your household. Why would Mary have to go? And again, this shows how, I love how cool Scripture is. It's just accurate in the area, the details that seem silly, right? Mary had to go because in, in, uh, in the, that region, in Syria, women had to register and pay taxes, too. It wasn't that, not that way all over the Roman Empire, but right there, Mary had to travel. That's why she went when she was pregnant. 
She had to. Not only that, but she might want to just travel with her husband. She was betrothed to him. Right? She was pregnant. Probably wasn't real friendly in her hometown. Right? She's probably like, I ain't going to stick around with these people. Right? And Joseph's like, you're not going to have this baby while I'm gone. Right? So who knows? But they travel. And they go all the way. And so they head up to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now I want to make a point here. That the lives of believers are not always fair, nor are they easy. I think a lot of times when we come to Christ and we, we expect that when God is working in my life, the doors will just open wide and my life will just be a waltz down, you know, the golden streets. We get that, but we get that when Christ comes back. In this world, oftentimes when God calls us into something, he calls us into like the valley of the shadow of death. The lives of believers, because you're in Christ, doesn't mean you, you, you deserve to have just an easy life. Oftentimes, because you are a Christian, God empowers you and enables you to walk through very, very difficult things because he's going to save this world, and he's using you. And, and he will use your circumstances, and he will use the difficulties, and he will build your faith, and he will carry you through, and he will do great things, but it's not always going to be easy. In fact, Jesus even told a parable. He said it's the, the gospel sometimes like, it's like a, a, a sower, like a, like a farmer goes out and sows a seed over all kinds of ground and someone lands on the soil and, or on the path and it gets picked up by birds and others gets amongst the weeds and gets choked out and some of it gets into the hard, rocky soil and it grows a little bit till it hits the rocks and it dies and others falls into good soil and it reproduces. This is the fact is that sometimes our life, every believer, there are, there are rocky patches and for the believers who think that our lives should just be easy, they get to the rocky patches and their faith goes away at the very time when that's the thing that would make their life powerful. And Mary and Joseph had to do something that was very inconvenient. They had to travel to Bethlehem while she was pregnant. I'm sure she's thinking, God, really now? God of all eternity? Right? You give me this child in a weird way that leads to me to some kind of, you know, it's not easy, and all the, the funny stares that people give me. And then you make me walk all this way? But, oh, it gets better. Because it says, while they were there, Right? She doesn't even get to give birth while she's in her hometown. She's got to travel pregnant, and now she's got to give birth to a baby, and I'm sure that she didn't bring a stroller. Right? Like, you know all the stuff parents have for kids. She's in a different place, different people, uncomfortable situations, surrounding, doesn't have anybody, right? While they were there. Now, we don't know if it happened when they first arrived, but I think the text justifies that. Right? Um, Maybe they, were, maybe they had been there for a couple days, right? But here's the thing. That the town would have been crowded, right? If people are going to be registered, right? Bethlehem would have had people. Bethlehem wasn't very far away from Jerusalem, though, right? It's only like six miles away. So most of the people would go to Jerusalem and get in a hotel. That's what they would do. And then you'd walk back, pay your taxes, and you'd go see the sites in Jerusalem, go to the temple and all that kind of stuff and do your thing, right? And then you go home. Right? You're not in the middle of nowhere. Bethlehem's not that far away. Why would they stay in Bethlehem? I think they made this trip, and like God was like, now's the time. She's like, really? I can't even get to Jerusalem? But if she made it to Jerusalem, then Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because the prophecy in Micah 5, 2 was that he would be born in Bethlehem. You know, um, I think labor is a good reason to stay. You want to travel six miles when you're actively in labor. It said the time came, verse 6, for the baby to be born. The time. You know, God's timing and your timing are not the same. God was fulfilling prophecies that had been around for centuries in a way that would be almost impossible in our thinking. How on earth would you get a guy from Nazareth to be born in Bethlehem? It just makes no sense, especially when Jerusalem is right down the road. God's timing and our timing don't always match. It's not always convenient when God walks, you know, 
in, in interrupts our comfortable lives and said, now, now is the time when you will face this. Now is the time when you're going to go through this. And we think, now, really? This is uncomfortable. He's like, yes. But it was the right time. Micah 5, 2, the baby we born in, in, in Jerusalem. Matthew 2, 23, we read that he would also be called a Nazarene. And there's no place in the Old Covenant that actually says he'll be called a Nazarene, but there's a lot of cool things in there that talk about, that uh, lead the, the Holy Spirit to interpret Scripture that way, like where he would be born and, and how he, where he would grow up. These are two very different places, one close to the temple, one closer to, to Samaria, right, with all these nasty Samarians between them and the temple of God. You have this, this amazing thing where God transplants a family and has Jesus, has Mary in the exact right place at the exact right time to fulfill prophecy. And it was not the right time, I'm sure, if you ask Mary and Joseph. Because there they are in this little town when there's a lot of hotels and hospital doctors and everything six miles away. They had just made this long journey. There's nobody else they know and they show up and there's no room for them. No room. But she gave birth because it was the right time. I think that's really cool. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for him. You said, Aaron, this is about the, the innkeeper. Well, that's the only place we read about the innkeeper. It's just no room for them. But I think if we take a step back, we should maybe stop focusing on the innkeeper and realize that this was God in the flesh. And he showed up in the most humble of ways. When the world wasn't making room for God, God was making a, a way for the world. It was God in the flesh. I've ever heard people talk about and, and ridicule our faith. They say, well, like, you should believe in a flying spaghetti monster. Well, guess what? I've never seen a flying spaghetti monster, but God came in the flesh. You could touch him. You could talk with him. He lived amongst us. He's historically real. He's the God in history. And the world has never been the same. In fact, where do we tie our calendars to? To when he showed up. We didn't do that for anybody else. He changed the world. And he is God in humility. He was weak and he was vulnerable and he was dependent. This was not Caesar Augustus. This was not the the grand conquering king that the world thought that, that the Messiah would be, but he conquered in a way that was far greater. And to us a child was born and a son was given. There was no guest room available. Is that the innkeeper's fault? Do we look at the innkeeper and say, you bad person, there's no room in your inn? No, that's the dumbest thing ever. Like people are all bad at mean about the innkeeper. I think that he did pretty good, right? The, the innkeeper, he was good at business. His inn was full. Is it wicked to be good at business? <laughs> like, in the midst of all of that busyness, if his inn wasn't full, we would be like, this guy is a, is a lousy businessman, right? It was good. Business was good. There was right. He had no idea God was going to show up. But he clearly had compassion on this young couple. He knew they couldn't make it all the way to Jerusalem. So he gives them a cave where the animals are in because it's a private place. It's a safe place. Animals are born there, right? I don't think they understood the same level of hygiene that we have. But, you know, it was there. He provided. He gave what he could. And you say, well, why wouldn't he just give him his place in the house? I don't know. He didn't know it was God. But I think also, if you were married, would you really want to be giving birth with like hundreds of people standing around you? Right in the midst of all the busyness and all the, the people that are traveling and all this kind of stuff, I think he gave him a place that was quiet. It was it was secluded. He gave him a private place place to uh, to give birth, and it was amazing. And so it was the right place for the Lamb of God to be born, anyhow. Right, and he was. 
And I think something else we need to know that some things about this is we look at the innkeeper, and if we are going to look at in the day and preparing our hearts, I think some things we need to recognize is the first thing is the innkeeper was open, right? The inn was open. We don't know a whole lot about this innkeeper. We know this is that he was he's open for business, right? He was doing what he was supposed to do. What if there was no inn, right? Where were Mary and Joseph? Would they have stopped and stayed in, in Bethlehem? I mean, if there was no place for them to stop, who knows, maybe by the side of the road or something, perhaps. But he got to be part of God's great plan of bringing the Messiah into the world, fulfilling prophecies that were centuries old because he was simply being faithful in business. He had a place there, and he ran it well. His business turned out to be a great ministry, a ministry to us all. I think that's amazing. I think a lot of times, most of us don't understand that that our work is, is worship. When you go to work, you have no idea how God is going to use what you do. You have no idea how he's going to step and how he's going to use. Just You think, well, I'm just going to the office today, or I'm going to go out and, and dig ditches or build a house, and who knows. But you know what the scripture says? This is a really cool thing. Ephesians 6, 7 says, Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. God works sometimes through the mundane. God works in the midst of, 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 our, of our regular lives. In fact, we don't just go to church and then somehow transform into disciples there. You are disciples of Jesus everywhere, including your places of work and places of business. Wherever we go, we are ambassadors of Christ. And this innkeeper, just because he was a good businessman, had the privilege of being able to be part of the Christmas story. I think that's pretty cool. I think for us, we look at this and are you open? Are you open to God using you and where you are at for ministry? Are you, is there a place prepared? Do you have room for God's ministry in your life, in your business even, in the most secular of things? Because I'll tell you, God uses and works through all kinds of things. The second thing I think we find is here is that the innkeeper himself was faithful. Right? Everybody um, right, was, uh, thought Bethlehem was going to be packed. Right? There, everyone showed up because there was taxes. Everybody was there. And God packed Bethlehem. The reason he did that is because he needed Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem so they could fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah, that this, the, the son of David, would be born in the city of David. And so he works all through these things and he moves through these pagan governments, right? God even, even goes into to Caesar Augustus and controls him in such a way that he says, you, you should have these taxes. You should have people go back to their hometowns of their lineage. So that... The Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Now, this was inconvenient for, for Mary and Joseph because the place was crowded, but it got them there. Ah, that's amazing. And, and here we have this guy. He's there, and he, he doesn't shut down. He opens up his business. He's, things are good. And God, he, he brings Mary and Joseph in, fulfills his prophecy. And, and in the midst of that, he was also faithful. He could have said, business is good enough. I don't need to show compassion. I don't have to, I've got all of my rooms, I don't need this trouble, I've got money, right, the times are good, I don't need extra things, but you know what, God, over and all the way through scripture tells us to be kind to other people, right? In fact, when somebody asked Jesus, hey, what is the most important thing that we can do, what's the most important commandment, you know what he said? He said, love God with everything you are, your heart, soul, mind, strength, spirit. You know what he else said? But he continued on, and he said this. He says, do others what you like them to do to you. In other words, another place he says that is to treat others like, um, to, as, as well as you'd like to be treated yourself, right? Care for others. And then he goes on to say, all of the law and the prophets are basically summed up in those two commands. This man was fulfilling the covenant. He was like, you know what? 
If I had a pregnant wife and I was traveling into a different city, I think that I would like if somebody would open up their home to us. Perfect? No, but faithful. I think when in doubt, or just in general practice, virtue is always the right choice, isn't it? Doing what we know God would want us to do, even when it's inconvenient, even when it looks like we don't have to, even when it looks like there's going to be consequences for doing the right thing, do the right thing, always. I was preparing this message this week, and I had an opportunity to not do the right thing or to do the right thing, and God used this passage to help me. I was adjusting my income for my insurance, and by putting just my income, which was going to be expected this next year, into my insurance thing, it blew up the government somehow. (laughs) And they wanted to give me all kinds of things that I know that I didn't deserve. So I spent hours on the phone. Now, the temptation was, their mistake. I'll just let them give me whatever they want, right? If If I'm honest, then it's going to cost me. Oh, it did. After I got through and finally showed them and they were like, oh, yeah, our computer's broken. I mean, it took a long time. And a lot of people saying, no, this is, you're absolutely right. I mean, multiple phone calls and hours on the phone waiting on hold <laughs> with horrible music, <laughs> right? And then having these people that, you know, do it, bless them. They're doing the best that they think they can, but it's not. And saying, no, this is impossible what you're telling me until finally they figured out the glitch and then it really cost us. Like, way, I mean, it was way worse than it was before. <laughs> way worse. And Amy will tell you, and Thomas too, I was, I was filled with rage at the indignation of, of the whole thing. It's like, I did the right thing and something bad happened. But I'm grateful that I had the word of God to carry me through that. Because when everybody's telling you to not do the right thing, it's easy to not choose virtue. When there's every opportunity and every benefit for not doing the right thing, it's easy for us to say, well, we'll let the world, they're gonna, it's their own fault. But I see in this passage and I see throughout Scripture how God works through us. And he simply asks us to do what is right. To treat other people like, like we would have them treat us. To do the right thing. If it costs you, it costs you. But you can sleep with yourself at night and you know that you're working hand in hand with the Almighty God. The innkeeper was faithful. The challenge for us is to be faithful in our day-to-day. You might not think that the little choices and the ways that you are caring for people matters. Who, how would this innkeeper have known that his little act of kindness of putting this couple up in, in the back shed would, would usher in the Savior of the world? You never know. But it's always the right time for virtue. So what's the moral of the story? Be prepared. Any Boy Scouts out there? <laughs> You're like, yes, right? That's it. I think that we need to be prepared. That's what the candle is all about. It's in our heart and our life. Jesus is coming back. But you know what? The Holy Spirit has already come, and the kingdom of God is growing in the world today. We're not just waiting. We're working. We need to be prepared for what God has for us now. Jesus, he tells all these parables. He says, you know what you need to do? You need to be ready. When I come back, you should be working. How many times did he tell parables about this? Or we don't know when he's coming back. We're not just because when he comes back, I want to be working. When he comes back, I want to be one of those people that that God said, I gave you five talents and and you invested it. And look, there's ten. 
We're always like, well, what if I'm the guy that invested five talents and loses it all? You forget the fact that God is working with you. If you are faithful, there will be fruit. You always reap what you sow. Always. And you always reap more than you sow. So be faithful. Be prepared. Everyone thought Bethlehem was packed because of taxes, but that's not why Bethlehem was packed. God had a bigger thing going on. So we need to be prepared. Be prepared in your circumstances. You might not think that the timing is right right now in your life for you to be a minister for God. You might look at your life, you think, I am a mess, my life is a mess, things are not, you know, once everything's perfect, then I can minister for God. Your timing and God's timing are not the same. Be prepared, always, in season, out season. You have no idea when God is going to work in you and through you to do something awesome. Be prepared. I think another thing we need to be prepared in our work, work is worship. What is worship? Worship is putting God in the center. Worship is whatever our lives revolve around. And too many people, they, they have their lives revolved around their careers, which is silly because our careers will end. But God won't. He is the everlasting Father and a Prince of Peace. And I'll tell you this, if you put God on the throne of your life, even in work, you're going to find opportunity for ministry. And you do that simply by doing the right thing and being the right person, right? Be a disciple of Jesus at work. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working directly for God. Also be prepared in your virtue. You're not saved because you're good. In fact, you're saved because you weren't good. That's why you need to be saved, right? You don't save yourself. Praise God. That's grace. But aren't you also grateful that God doesn't leave us in our brokenness? That he uses right action to do great things in spite of the fact we're all broken. Be prepared in your virtue. If you are in the habit of, of, of practicing what is right and what is good, guess what's going to happen? Is when God calls upon you, you're going to do what is right and what is good. Be virtuous when nobody's looking because God is looking. He's preparing you. Be prepared in your heart and your actions and your life. Be faithful is another way of saying that. Just be faithful to God. So how do I put this to practice? Well, I've got some ideas. If you take out your connection card, if you want to look it on the back side there, some things that you can do even this week. In fact, I would ask you to do them this week. First thing you could do this week, maybe to start preparing your heart for God, is memorize Isaiah 9 6. Realize that the world is always going to have imposters. The world is always going to put people up there. They're going to say, This is a son of God, right? This is the right thing. This is a prince of peace. This is an everlasting father, right? This is a, a wise counselor. Just like they did with Caesar Augustus. But the real Prince of Peace have come. The real everlasting Father has come. I think you need to realize that we need to be worshiping the right God. It's a great thing. Maybe what you do is you read Matthew 2. You'll notice that through this series, you're reading each different week a different chapter that are part of the the, the narrative of of the birth story of Christ. Read Matthew 2. If you haven't read all of Matthew, read the rest of it too. It's a great story true story how about this maybe you attend next next couple weeks wait this is the wrong one i'll tell you what be prepared that's what i want you to do read luke 2 be prepared be prepared that's what i want what do you want to do when i say be prepared be prepared in this be prepared in your heart prepare your life make room for god in your life today so i would say today this afternoon Go home and have some introspective time. Think about your life and your day and your thinking. Where is God in that? Make room for him. And maybe that's the last one you do is you say, I'm making room for God. I'm not only going to be prepared, I'm going to be working and I'm going to be prepared in my virtue and my life, but I'm actually going to this week, I'm going to make room for God in my thinking. I'm going to set time aside for God, especially this season. And I'm going to expect God. I'm going to set a place for him at the table of my heart. And that's what you need to do. Here in a minute, we're going to have our offering as we take our offering and our tithes. 
and the baskets are passed, I'm going to ask that you would take those connection cards and you put them in the baskets as well, right? And then I'll pray for you this week and you have something to work on and, and I have my own ones that I'm going to be working on this week and then next week we come together and we celebrate the, the candle of joy, which is, yay, that's super fun. And we expect God and we'll see how he shows up and we could tell stories of faith in life. That'll be good. So let's do that. Let's pray for our commitment and our tithes and our offerings now. <coughs> Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You are a... <laughs> You came as a human. A child was born. It blows my mind. God in the flesh, the eternal, becomes mortal for us. And, but you didn't stay just mortal. You overcame death on our behalf. Lord, you fulfilled the prophecies. You were the child of David, lineage. Lord, how many prophecies did you fulfill? Even today we read you were of the right lineage. Both of your parents, you were the right lineage. You were exactly the right person at the right time in the right place. So we wouldn't miss it. And we haven't missed it. Lord, we're grateful that you've come. And Lord, we look to you recognizing that you are that you are strong enough and good enough and powerful enough to truly govern in the right way. Oh, Father, you are wise. Lord, we look to Christ for, for not just salvation, but Father, also for the transformation and, and taking us from being the broken people that we were into the saints that you have called us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the transformation. Father, thank you for the truth that the kingdom of God is growing in this world. And it's in every continent and every nation and, and in every tongue and every language, just as you said would be. You are a powerful God. And we know that, Father, there's a time coming when these national things and these divisions that we hold against us are going to disappear, but you will not. And we are part of that great kingdom, so thank you. But Father, we know that your kingdom isn't just about power, Lord, that you, you're a prince of peace, that your kingdom is, is, is good, that it brings about not just a peace amongst other people, but a peace in life itself. It relieves our anxiety of how we're going to live and, and how we're going to care for ourselves and instead frees us to be the kind of people that you've always called us to be, to practice love and to receive love Father, and to give love. So, Father, you are amazing, and it's never going to end. Your kingdom, there's no regime change ever on the horizon. So, Father, help us to invest in your kingdom today. And these commitments that we make, help us draw closer to you. Father, I pray in, in, in our, our tithes and our offerings that you would accept them as gifts of love, Father, and that you would grow your kingdom in us and through us, Father, that you would reach every nook and cranny of this valley with the good news of Jesus. We pray that in, in his wonderful name. Amen.